Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show, episode number 59. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. All right, welcome to the show. Before I introduce the guest, I wanted to let you know that I'll be speaking again at the Canadian Financial Summit next week, and I have free tickets for you. So the entire event, it's online, so you can watch it from anywhere, and it's Canada's largest personal finance conference. I'll be there together with over 25 Canadian personal finance experts, and in my talk, I'll be speaking about how we optimized our investment portfolio before we retired and after we retired. So no matter where you are on your financial independence journey, it'll at the the very least, give you some insights on ways that you can optimize your own investment portfolio so that you can retire early or at least hit your financial independence number quicker so that you can actually do you know whatever it is that you want in life. So to get your free tickets for a limited time, just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash conference. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash conference. And if you're listening to this episode months or years after the conference is already over, then you can still go to that link to sign up and be informed when I have free tickets for next year's conference. And also as a bonus, I'll also email you a recording of my talk from this year's conference so that you don't miss it. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca slash conference. Definitely sign up. It's totally free. It has many of the top personal finance experts in Canada, and I hope to see you there. All right, let's get into our guest for today, which is Jason Heath. Jason has been providing fee-only, advice-only financial planning since 2001 and is one of Canada's best-known fee-only financial planners. He is currently a personal finance columnist for the Financial Post and Money Sense Magazine. He is also a regular contributor to retirehappy.ca. Now, I've been reading his insightful financial planning articles on Money Sense for years now, and I've definitely become a fan of his writing and insights over that time. So I thought it would be great Great to have him on the show to discuss how we Canadians can optimize our investment portfolios both before retirement, when we're in the growth phase trying to retire early, and after retirement, once we've hit our number, just to make sure that we don't actually run out of money once we're there. Now, as usual, I want to give a big thanks to EQ Bank for sponsoring the show. I'm definitely still offering out my guide for free on the top ETFs in Canada for anybody that opens up a free account with them using my link. And I'll be offering this pretty much indefinitely and I'll be updating the guide every single year. So even if you know, you're listening to this years from now, you can still sign up and I will give you the latest guide for that particular year. Now, I've been using them four years, even before they became a sponsor of the show. And the main reason is that they have one of the highest interest savings rates in Canada. They are currently offering 2.3%, which is more than double what the major banks are offering. It's also free to sign up and keep an account with them so you're not paying a monthly fee like you do with many of the other banks out there. And you also get unlimited transactions, unlimited interact e-transfers, and you can take out your money at any time if you need it. There's no minimum balances or anything like that. And so because of those reasons, I've been with them ever since they launched in Canada years ago, and it's where I keep my entire emergency fund and spending money as well, and pretty much the safety portion of my portfolio. So basically, just about everything of mine that isn't being invested in ETFs goes directly into my EQ Bank account to earn me that high interest. So to get the free high interest account and the free guide, on the top ETFs in Canada, just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter E and the letter Q. Open the free account and once you're done, forward any email that you get from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. 
www.buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll send you the full comprehensive guide for free. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ to open an account. Then forward me any email from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll email you the free in-depth guide. You do have to use that link, that buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ link in order to get the bonus. All right, so enjoy. Thank you so much for supporting that show in that way. A lot a lot of people already have, so I really do appreciate you guys you know, supporting me and you know, helping me uh, so I can keep producing these episodes and, and bring on really high-quality guests. So I really do appreciate for, for everyone that has done that already uh, for me for the show and I you know, definitely, I'm making a really strong effort to make it worth your while by really producing some really high quality episodes with some really high quality guests so that you can optimize your finances and your investments even further. So thank you so much. Thank you for supporting the show. And now let's get into the episode. All right, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Cornell. So Jason, to kick things off, what do you think is the best way for do-it-yourself investors to determine their asset allocation in terms of what percentage of stocks versus fixed income to hold in their portfolio? Yeah, it's it's a loaded question, and um, I wish there was a nice, simple, clean answer. I think uh, a lot of financial questions and, and financial planning challenges, it would be nice if there was just a, a simple answer, but I think this is one where it's more uh, art than science, I suppose. Um, there are rules of thumb out there that people may be aware of, certainly um, 100 minus your age for figuring out your uh, allocation to stocks uh, so that a 30-year-old, for example, would have uh, 100 minus 30 or 70% of their portfolio in stocks versus uh, an 80-year-old would have 100 minus 80 or 20% in stocks. I mean, that concept makes sense, I suppose, in, in theory, but... Um, it's not always appropriate. I, I tend to look more to risk tolerance assessments. You can have a 30-year-old who has a very low uh, risk tolerance who may be all in GICs or maybe they're saving towards a home down payment in a couple of years and their time frame for the money is really short. So despite being young, it wouldn't make sense to have a high exposure to stocks. And look, I have clients that are in their 80s who are 100% in stocks because they're living off the dividend income. They have a high risk tolerance. They're well-versed investors. So um, it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all answer. And I think one of the other challenges is it may differ by account. Your overall asset allocation might be a certain percentage in, in risky assets like stocks and a certain percentage in fixed income. Um, but when you're looking to optimize tax efficiency and, and you know, depending where you're going to take withdrawals from, you may have all equity in one account and all fixed income in another. So it, it makes uh, certainly asset allocation for any investor, particularly DIY investors, uh, challenging. Mm-hmm. Now, does that answer change at all in terms of your process when you have a new client come on, for example? Does your process of figuring that out change depending on whether, let's say, they are working towards, let's say, an early retirement versus already being retired? Uh, it, it can, certainly. I think the earlier that somebody is uh, looking to retire or has retired, obviously, the longer their time frame and their retirement is likely to be. And absent a pretty significant amount of investment capital, an early retiree may need to have that much more stock or, or risky asset exposure within their portfolio. Um, you know, there's certainly a, a correlation between 
the amount of money you have in stocks and your expected long-term rate of return. So if you need your money to last a long time and you want your money to uh, outlast you, having a high exposure to stocks is, is really important. But like I said, you can have an 80-year-old who has a 100% stock exposure because they're not really dipping into the capital um, and their risk tolerance is, is good. So it makes it really difficult. I see people that are at opposite ends of, of the extreme, and I, I think that investing and, and asset allocation are, are very personal um, strategies. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like your process is, let's say you bring on a new client, that yes, you have them do those uh, risk questionnaires, right? Those asset allocation questionnaires. Sure. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the risk. They can be helpful for sure. Yeah, so I guess you do that, but it sounds like you also you sit down with them, you meet with them and you talk and you really try to find out their entire financial situation, both where the kind of, they said psychologically, but also where they are sort of in their, in their life in terms of investments and assets and all that. And then, and then you, it sounds like you put all that together and say, okay, the questionnaire as answers is this, but because you've answered this particular way to these questions and because of this situation, let's maybe tweak it a bit more conservative towards fixed income or a bit more aggressive towards equities. Does that sound right? Absolutely. I'll, okay. I'll tell you, I, um, I, I tested out a risk tolerance questionnaire that we were using a few years ago. I answered it myself and I felt as if I gave um, the most aggressive answers that could have been mm-hmm. given. Um, maybe I, I didn't and I was surprised when the recommended asset allocation came back for, for me. And um, I can't remember specifically. I think it recommended somewhere between 70 and 80% in stocks. Um, I'm 40 years old right now. And for perspective, my, my children, my oldest uh, child is 11 years old, so going to university in seven years. And I've got 100% stock allocation in his registered education savings plan because I'm fairly confident that seven years from now, stocks will be higher. But uh, even me, when I, I looked at my own uh, responses to the risk tolerance assessment, I took them with a grain of salt. And uh, I think that uh, you need to do that with even the the scientific process of, of doing those types of uh, questionnaires. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I hear you. I find um, it's... Like I've done them myself as well, and it's it's you're kind of at the mercy of their algorithm a little bit, right? And you might not always yeah. agree with yeah. the way that their algorithm is set up. So I, I so I see what you're saying because it may one may say, oh well, they put a really high weight towards your age, so it's like, oh, you're this age, so you must yeah. be really high, we, we must put you really high into fixed. Or, or you're self-employed, for example, it, it, like I am, and right. you know risk is in your business, so you should be more conservative in your investments. So that, that's right. They're, they're perfect, but but certainly it's better than nothing. And I can tell you that I've worked with clients where they say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not a very um, uh, aggressive investor. I'm pretty conservative. And, and you sit down and you look at their investment portfolio, and they're like 80% in stocks. Right. And um, they, they may not even realize. Yeah, oftentimes you ask somebody, how much do you have in stocks? How much do you have in bonds? Not sure. How do you pay your investment advisor? How do you pay your fees? Not sure. Hmm. Um, it's amazing how few people realize what they're invested in, what fees they're paying things like that. And again, these asset allocation questionnaires at least provide some perspective to having an intelligent discussion with with a client about their investments. For sure. I find too that people's emotions and feelings about the answers uh, you know, can really change depending on when you ask them and how you oh, ask sure. them. And then also I find too, the biggest surprise to me was 
it it really impacts how much you already know about investing. So I noticed I've I've done a whole bunch of these. Uh, I know Vanguard has a good one. I can leave that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's a free question people can take. But but I remember doing a bunch of them. And yeah, sometimes it's they ask you these questions, and if you know sort of the history of the stock market and how indexes tend to perform and things like that, then your answers are going to be vastly different to somebody mm-hmm. that views the stock market as this extremely risky thing where it's like all or nothing, like a you know like a stock picker's or like a day trader's kind of perspective, right? So I find depending how much education you have and where your head's at, it, it can really really impact. You know, like just, just an hour of education could totally change your asset allocation when you do these questionnaires i find but the the irony of, of questions like that and and um, you know assuming that that people who know more about investing or have more experience are are going to have a higher risk tolerance is i remember I, I wish i could remember which university it was it might have been stanford it was one of the big uh u.s schools had done this um uh study and they had um uh, obtained a, a number of years of data from a discount brokerage in the U.S. and it looked at um, do-it-yourself investors and their long-term investment performance and compared it to, you know, the biggest pension plans uh, and mutual funds in the United States. And one of the things that the particular study found, I believe the time period was somewhere in the 80s and the 90s and in, in sometime after 2000, um, they actually found that market timing um, and uh, long-term investment performance for do-it-yourself investors in the, that particular study, um, that the better market timers uh, who avoided selling uh, low and buying high were the do-it-yourself investors, and, and that the professionals did a very poor job of, of market timing. And one of the hypotheses that they put forward is that the do-it-yourself investors um, many of whom did not transact on their account at all. They just bought and they sort of forgot about their investments. One of the reasons that they did not uh, become susceptible to selling low and buying high and making investment mistakes is because they weren't paying attention right. and they were not as well-versed. And um, their complacency actually led them to be better market timers. So it, it's amazing that uh, sometimes knowing less and paying less attention can be a good thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember uh, seeing or hearing about some other um, study that a company did where they looked at, okay, well, which one, which of our investors are doing better and which ones are doing worse? And they found this like really, really small segment of their of their customers that were doing surprisingly better than all the other ones. And then they tried to find out what they had in common. And then the, the answer was that they were all dead. <laughs> So oh, there you go. <laughs> so they were passive to the extreme in the sense that they can't really, you know, awesome. do anything, right? So they kind of, I don't know how they, you know, maybe they were going through the transitioning to their like spouse or something. I, I don't know what the details yeah, of it right. was. But it goes it, to show you. you but know, it just goes to show you. Portfolio, especially for a do-it-yourself investor, too much tinkering can be a bad thing. For sure. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, I'm um, looking at the living people, I think, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. if, if they are not trying to time the market, they might just say, I mean, this is what we did when we were, uh, you know, saving for, for retirement is we just said, okay, with mm-hmm. every paycheck, okay, we're going to put this amount in. And it became yeah. this very, you know, you're just dollar cost averaging yep. in. Just it becomes every Friday or every other Friday. Ex- exactly. Exactly. Market. Every paycheck you put this in and it's a consistent amount and you don't try to time it. You don't try to, you just do it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think there's, there's so much evidence at this point too, right? That says that market timing is really, I mean, no one mm-hmm. can really do it uh, consistently, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I have yet to see some reputable study that says, oh yeah, there's, you know, 
these perfect market timers in the world. I have I have yet to <laughs> you know to see one. So I I totally see your point. Um, now for somebody that's approaching an early retirement or even a traditional retirement. Do you also base the percentage of their fixed income on some sort of spending-related rule? So, for example, that common advice to hold five years of living expenses as fixed income, as that should write out most recessions if we're looking at historical data? Um, I I don't necessarily. I mean, I have some clients that like to take a bucketing approach like that where they might have three or five years or whatever the case may be in, in cash or near cash or fixed income and and you know beyond that they have stock exposure i think one of the challenges with uh bucketing it goes back to that market timing discussion we were just having that it you know it, it sort of purports that uh when stock markets are down that people are going to draw down on their cash and their fixed income instead and and then they're going to somehow flip the switch and move back to their stocks when markets rise and I think one of the challenges with timing the market is you need to be right twice. You need to pick the the right time to to sell. You need to pick the right time to buy. And even the experts have a tough time being right once. Um, there's been studies that have shown that compared to just maintaining a a constant um, asset allocation and drawing down proportionately from your portfolio, that bucketing. Um, and trying to draw down on on cash in in down markets uh, does not necessarily perform better. That you might be better off just maintaining a, a constant uh, asset allocation with your investments. And I I kind of like that because you know maintaining a, a similar asset allocation regardless of the market conditions kind of forces you to do what you want to do as an mm-hmm. investor. You want to sell uh, high and and buy low. And if you're taking a withdrawal from your portfolio. At a time when markets are high, you're going to end up taking more money from stocks. And if it's when uh, stocks are down, you're going to take more from bonds. And I I think it reinforces um, the best possible investor behavior without adding any emotion to it. So although I'm not a big fan of a bucket strategy, my own approach is that there is no one size fits all answer. And you just need to talk things through with clients and if having things bucketed uh, having a year or three years or five years of expenses or withdrawals in cash or fixed income makes sense for them, then, you know, so be it. And you have to try to work with them accordingly. So it sounds like with you, your clients, your practice in general, so do you guys do more of sort of a, you just look at the sort of total, you look at the portfolio as one whole and you just do a total return approach and you say, we're just going to keep at this allocation. Absolutely. Okay. That, that's my own, that's my own bias, but um, again, you know, I, I have clients, I can think of one that I met with recently that is uh, very um, uh, specific in the terms of the bucketing that they do down mm-hmm. to this is the vacation bucket. This is the, um, you know, bucket for this. This is the bucket for that and, and literally have it broken in a separate account. So um, I, I try, try to take the same approach with any types of financial discussion that I'm having with clients, even as it relates to investment strategy. Um, some of my clients are do-it-yourself investors. Some of my clients are stock traders. Some of them are passive investors. Some work with investment advisors who are discretionary portfolio managers or stockbrokers, and yet others have all their investments in rental real estate. So I think it's very important, particularly in my line of business, 
to be open-minded that not everyone is going to want to invest their money, build their portfolio, and take their withdrawals and retirement in, in the same way. It's kind of like, you know, pizza. I mean, I think that it is immoral to put pineapple on pizza. I love pineapple. I think it is very wrong to put fruit on a pizza. Um, my wife does it once in a while, and I cringe and look the other way. Um, but everyone's a little bit different, and you have to try to work with them on on that basis is, is my own approach. Mm-hmm. So is your uh, default, in a way, it, it sounds like you'll just say, okay, we'll figure out the asset allocation, what it is, and then let's say somebody's in retirement, and let's say they need, let's say, 40000 they, they want that much income. So we'll say, okay, we'll take that out. Well, basically, we'll rebalance in such a way that we take that 40 out, and once we take that 40 out, you're also now rebalanced Rebalancing the asset allocation that you want to be or that we want you to be at. Yeah, and, and the other um, kind of tricky thing about the way that I myself approach portfolio management, management and, and withdrawals and retirement is that I feel that you should have um, your overall portfolio asset allocation, and then you need to look at it on an account-by-account account basis. Mm-hmm. Much easier, it, you know, if everything was just in an RSP or whatever, you could just a single account, it, it would be quite easy. But these days, you know, with the introduction of tax-free savings account 10 years ago, um, most people have at least two different buckets in, in terms of account types. They're taking withdrawals from RSPs and TFSAs. Some have non-registered accounts. Some have, you know, corporate accounts. We have a lot of clients who are incorporated. And you may well have 100% equity in one account, 100% fixed income in another account, and then, you know, 50-50 in stocks and bonds in another account. And where you're taking the withdrawals from um, may dictate how your asset allocation is in a particular account as well as the uh, the tax implications. So that makes it a little bit trickier, but I also don't think that, you know, you need to be rebalancing every week or every month. I think it would be something that can happen a couple times a year. Gotcha. Okay, no, that makes total sense, yeah. And yeah, I, I totally get your point about some clients, they still want that bucket strategy. Everything I've read on that subject is that, you know, people just feel some people feel a lot more comfortable with that. Just saying, okay, yeah. I have let's say a years of of cash or five years uh, that you know of, of spending that I can draw on if we have another two thousand eight, for example, and it just lets them sleep much better at night knowing that they yeah. have that. Um, but then, like like you said, there's it's not like that's been shown to always perform better than just doing what you guys are doing. It's just more of a I think that's psychological thing, right? Money psychologically, uh, emotionally, there's so much mm-hmm. more at play. And, and oftentimes, I have meetings where I think, boy, only ten percent of that meeting was was about money and, and math. The other ninety percent right. was was about the the mind and emotions and psychology. And um, if somebody feels more comfortable with a bucket strategy, great. It, it's kind of a, a similar approach. I, I met with a client. Um, last week who had a significant amount of cash to invest. And they said, so, you know, what do I do? I mean, stock markets um, here in September 2019 are, are at and near all-time highs. You know, a recession is coming. We know that. I should probably wait, right? I should probably wait and sort of ride it out and, and buy when markets are low. And I gave the same advice I mentioned previously. You need to be right twice. You need to pick the right time to, right. to buy, the right time to sell whenever you're trying to time the market. And given that that stocks go up about two thirds of the time, um, the best time to invest a lump sum of money is today. Right. Um, you know, dollar cost averaging into the market, if you have a lump sum of money may feel better, but two thirds of the time, you would have been better off just doing it right off the bat. 
Uh, and I think if someone is going to take an approach where they're adding money into a portfolio uh, on a regular basis, a lump sum like that, or, or if they need to take a withdrawal from a portfolio, if it makes them feel better to do it on a dollar cost averaging basis, then go for it. But put it into your calendar, do it monthly, do it quarterly, whatever the case may be over whatever period of time you feel is appropriate. But literally put it in your calendar and do it that day, regardless of whether stocks are up or down or what they said on the six o'clock news. None of that stuff matters. Take the emotion out of your investing and your financial decisions. And ultimately, I think you'll be that much better off. For sure. Now, when you're working with clients and strategizing on what should be in that fixed income or that safe portion of their portfolio, Mm -hmm. how do you determine how much they should put into, let's say, bonds versus high interest savings account versus GICs? You mentioned you don't really use the bucket approach, but do you... You know, how do you decide whether, like, do you just go, oh, let's just, we suggest all bond, you know, ETFs, that kind of thing, or do you do some sort of a split? You know, are there any certain rules or processes that you like to follow to figure this out? Um, I wouldn't say there's a specific rule or a specific process, but certainly the the primary thing I look at is is risk tolerance. That's first and foremost. Um, the secondary thing I would look at is time horizon. Um, you know, you think of a, a young uh, 25-year-old graduated from university, starting their first job. Conventional wisdom is they should have a very high exposure to stocks in their portfolio and very little fixed income. Um, but a 25-year-old probably needs to get a car, needs to buy furniture to furnish, um, you know, an apartment. They may be saving up for a down payment or a wedding or a child. There's so much that happens between, say, 25 and 35 that uh, I think there's a lot of young people that should have uh, a high exposure to cash and GICs and fixed income, despite the conventional wisdom that, oh, you've got 40 years to retirement, you should be aggressive. So risk tolerance and and time horizon to me are are the most important things. Um, And, you know, some people, I I have clients these days, however pitiful the uh, yields are. I have some clients that have a lot of money in GICs because they're simple, they're straightforward. Um, bonds, whether it's individual bonds or whether it's a bond, mutual fund or exchange traded fund uh, can uh, go down in value. And, and people have uh, seen that uh, in the last, uh, you know, last year as interest rates were starting to, to rise, that bonds can go down when interest rates rise. Um, I, I think it really is something that needs to be personalized depending on the, the individual, and, and it's hard to come up with uh, rules and, and processes. However much they, they sound great and they make for good uh, sort of sound bites and uh, news articles and things like that, I, I think it's something that needs to be personalized. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on the bond ETFs? Like, I mean, I'm talking the, the broad market bonds, right, just for the typical sort of core holding. What are your thoughts about using those versus something like a high interest savings account or a GIC just because the yields have been so low plus you're enduring that interest rate risk as well right so if you're just looking for something safe you know like yes you could miss out on some of that you know capital gain potentially right with the you know if the interest rates move by you know if, if you don't do bond, like a bond ETF but i mean yeah what are your sort of general thoughts on it because it seems like the yields are it's not like you're getting that much more it seems in yield if you do a bond ETF. So my, I know the, the dilemma I've run into myself is well, I could just do like a really high interest savings account or GIC, oh, yeah. where the rate is 
you know, it, it, it's, I would say, pretty comparable to what a bond ETF can, will dish out. But yes, there might be, you know, if interest rates move, I may miss out on some of that, you know, some, some extra gain. But that's not really the purpose of my bond portion of my fixed income portion anyway, right? It's, it's more yeah. of, a, of, a, of a safety play at that point. Uh, so yeah, so what are your, what are your thoughts? Because I think a lot of uh, Canadians are struggling with this, right? They're saying, well, I'm taking on interest rate risk by doing a bond ETF. There's all these other options that are, that have yields that are pretty, you know, close, comparable, comparable. yeah, and and they're and, and it's and it's guaranteed too, right? So that's the other big thing, right? Is mm-hmm. I've got one thing where it's guaranteed and no interest rate risk, and the other one is not guaranteed. I may get some appreciation, but it's still probably not going to be as high as equity, or it's like historically, it, w- it won't be as high as equity. So, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a very difficult time to invest in uh, fixed income. I mean, you know, if you're looking at um, at uh, exchange traded funds in, in particular, um, I mean, right now the the Canada Universe Bond Index is yielding somewhere in the two and a quarter percent range. Um, you know, you've got interest rate uh, risk because the duration of um, a Universe Bond uh, ETF is uh, about eight years so it's not short-term bonds it's sort of medium-term bonds and to get two and a quarter percent and pay a fee to do it um, even if it's fairly modest and have interest rate risk compared to GIC rates that are out there that are you know two and a half percent plus or minus depending on your uh, term and savings account uh, rates that are fully liquid that you can get the money the next day that are paying higher interest rates um, again, I don't think that GICs are a bad investment right now, particularly for a do-it-yourself investor uh, compared to a, a bond exchange credit fund. It's simple, it's predictable, and I think that anybody that works with an investment advisor these days um, needs to have a very frank discussion with their advisor about the fixed income portion of their portfolio. If you're in uh, GICs with an investment advisor, they're probably... Uh, not getting super competitive GIC rates. Uh, if you're in government bonds um, and conservative corporate bonds, depending on the fees you're paying, you might be earning less than what you could earn in a GIC or a savings account. So I have clients where they um, have money with a discretionary portfolio manager and they have taken the fixed income portion out and put it into GICs in some cases and just paid the portfolio manager to manage the stock portion of their portfolio. So whether you're DIY or, or you work with an advisor, I think it's a time to have a frank discussion about fixed income. It's tough for anyone to, to make money in fixed income these days. And, and I guess the goal uh, is easily stated as not being to, to make money. It's to preserve capital. It's to provide stability with your portfolio. And um, we just happen to be in a low interest rate environment where you have to have low expectations, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, because I mean, I've read all this sort of traditional advice about the bonds and how important they are, you know, the bond ETFs, for example. But then, yeah, you look at the current environment and uh, I'm having a I've, I've been struggling with this so much to try. To, you know, I'm trying to persuade myself to go more, in, a bit more into bonds, just to not be so equity, you know, heavy. 
but it's it's I can't make a good business case out of it because of what's happening. So it's interesting. That, and when I talk to other professionals in the field like yourself, I mean, they say the same thing. I hear this over and over and over again, uh, like like what you just said. So so very very interesting. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, the yield on on uh, one of the bonds. You mentioned something like two and a quarter, right? So two point two five percent. So I have my fixed income portion with EQ Bank, which is a high interest savings. Oh yeah, it's it's, point, it's two point three, I think. Right yeah, now, yeah, right. But I mean, yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's. So if it's two point three, then there you go. I'm beating. <laughs> I'm beating, and yeah, I'm beating the with no risk, the with no no risk know, guaranteed by CDIC, right? I mean, there's there's it's a guaranteed thing, and then so it's all pretty much the same, but mm-hmm. you're getting a guaranteed return. So I mean, no interest rate risk, no risk of you know seeing your exactly. money go down if interest rates go up. Exactly, yeah, exactly right. So it's like, I, yeah, yeah. So so I mean, when I when I see that example, I say, well, why don't I? And yes, it's still pains me to not just put that into equities, but then, I mean, it's good. You do want some fixed income portion as well, right, in your portfolios. Hey guys, just wanted to pause the interview to provide a bit more explanation on what we're talking about here. So this guaranteed interest of 2.3% makes things very interesting because when you're constructing the safety portion of your investment portfolio, the traditional advice is that you buy a low-cost bond ETF. And when you buy a bond ETF, you're basically buying a stake in hundreds or thousands of loans, and those loans pay you interest, similar to what a high-interest savings account would. Now, when Jason and I talk about yield, we're essentially talking about the interest that you would receive in a bond ETF versus the interest you would receive in a high-interest savings account. Now, because the interest rates on a high-interest savings account like EQ are so high, and EQ is, like I said, easily one of the highest ones that I've been able to find, an argument can be made to just put the safety portion of your money in a high-interest savings account instead of a traditional bond ETF. Of course, I suggest that you keep your entire emergency fund in a high-interest savings account anyway. Uh, You should be doing that regardless. That part's a no-brainer as you want that money safe and available if something unexpected happens in your life. But the dilemma that we're talking about here specifically is more centered around saving for retirement or if you are already in retirement. So in other words, where do you put your safety money that's not going to fluctuate wildly with the stock market? You definitely want a portion of your portfolio in that sort of a bucket, right? So you know, how much do you put in? Where do you put in? That's the big, the big question that you, you get. So let's look at the pros and cons between using a high interest savings account versus a bond ETF. So the main disadvantage of using a high interest savings account versus a bond ETF is that if interest rates drop in the future, you will miss out on some capital appreciation. So bonds have an inverse relationship with interest rates. So when interest rates drop, the value of your bonds go up. So you get a gain. But it works the other way too. So if the interest rate goes up, which a lot of people believe they will because we're still at historical lows right now, then your bonds will actually drop in value. So you're still getting that yield, which will you know, cushion that decline a bit, but the bonds that you are holding will now be worth less. So now I'm definitely not going to speculate on where interest rates are heading, but the bottom line, and, and by the way, as a side note, anyone that tells you they can reliably consistently predict interest rates is, is full of it. No, no, no one really can. So now, so I'm not going to you know speculate on where interest rates are heading, but the bottom line is that if interest rates go up in the future, you can expect to take a hit in what your bonds are worth, okay? So the question is, then the question you want to ask yourself is, do you want to expose yourself 
to interest rate fluctuations like this for the safety portion of your investment portfolio. Now, if the answer that you're give yourself as yes, then who knows, you might get lucky and interest rates go down after you buy that bond ETF and you'll get some nice capital appreciation. I mean, it's not going to be some home run because we're still talking bonds, right? So it's not like you're going to double your value. I mean, it's going to be a minor increase, but an increase nonetheless. In this case, it's great that you pick that bond ETF instead of using a high interest savings account because you just got lucky with your with your timing. Interest rate just happened to work in your favor and, and great. But if interest rates go up in the future, then it's likely that you would be better off using a high interest savings account that has a comparable yield as your high interest savings account is guaranteed and it never drops in value. Whereas in this scenario, if you instead pick bonds, your bonds would have dropped in value. So definitely, you know, those scenarios, the high interest savings account would be better off. So this is a personal decision of whether you want to take on that interest rate risk or not. As you can see, it can work for you or against you, depending on what you, you know, depending on what happens. Uh, and it's basically no one, you can't control the interest rate. So it's something that's totally beyond your control. So the way that I personally tackle this dilemma is I start by asking myself, what is the purpose of the safety portion of my investment portfolio? In other words, Am I trying to maximize safety and stability in the safety portion of my portfolio? Or am I trying to optimize for growth specifically in this safe portion of my portfolio? And I'll, I'll give you a hint as to my answer. The answer is right in the question. So since here we're talking about the safety portion of my portfolio, then obviously my priority here is safety, right? Therefore, while I still want large growth and I still, you know, that's what the stock portion of the portfolio is for, is to give you that growth by investing in stocks, you know, through low cost index ETFs like what I do. So for example, let you know, let's say you're targeting a portfolio of 90% stocks and 10% fixed income. So for that 10% fixed income portion of my portfolio, I want that to be optimized for safety and stability. And I want that 90% to be optimized for growth. Now, this is just a sample asset allocation, you know, that I would feel comfortable with. Once again, I'm not saying you should have that as well. You know, that it's a personal preference piece, but you know, this is just the way, you know, something to think about for yourself. So this is why when we were in pre-retirement, we were actually 100% in stocks through broad market index ETF. So the same, you know, stuff that I've been preaching here forever. But once we got into retirement and even a little bit before, just to help with the transition, I started building up a cushion, which was that safety portion of our portfolio. So this way, if the markets did take a major hit, I would still have that guaranteed money there, which hasn't lost any money. It's still paying me interest and I can use that for our living expenses until the stock market recovers. So I, I liked it. I felt better with having that because I like not having to worry about where interest rates are going and knowing that I am going to take a hit if interest rates go up. So for that safety portion of the portfolio, I decided to keep it ultra safe in a high interest savings account that's guaranteed. So for me personally, I decided to keep that money uh, in my EQ high interest savings account instead of buying bond ETFs. And so the, the main reasons for this was one, it gives me the guaranteed rate of return. Two, I don't have to worry about the value of my safety portion of the portfolio dropping when I need it most. 
Three, it's very liquid, meaning I can withdraw it at any time with no restrictions. Now, mind you, a bond ETF is liquid too, but this is more of a reason why I chose a high interest savings account instead of a GIC for that safety portion of my portfolio because with a GIC, your money is locked in and so you can't take it out before the specified time, which could be anywhere from one to five years depending on what GIC you pick. There's there's some shorter ones as well, but basically your money is locked in for the time that you chose. So you usually get a higher interest rate, the longer you go, but that money is locked in. You can't take it out. So I do like GICs too, mind you, but because this was our first year in full retirement, I wanted to have that money liquid so that if there was some sort of emergency in life that I didn't foresee, for example, our car actually literally ended up breaking down shortly after we retired. So, you know, this is why, you know, I had all, you know, so this is why I really liked having access to all my money with no restrictions in a high interest savings account because you know first year retirement everything is based on sort of projections you know once you're in it things might change you might get emergencies and so if you do want that money available at any time you know that was a really really good fit for us and it really helped me sleep all at night as well because you're not getting that you know those paychecks from your job anymore right and so to know that okay i've got this nice secure pot of money i've still got a lot on growth you know so i'm still keeping up with inflation my portfolio is still doing well but having that safety portion of my portfolio where I don't have to worry about interest rates. I know it's in there. I know it's guaranteed. I know I'm getting a secure, you know, really high interest rate consistently. You know, it's 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 just that really, really helped us personally. So uh, number four, <laughs> it's safe because it's insured by CDIC. This is another reason why, you know, I decided to to do the EQ high interest savings account. It's because it's safe because it's insured by CDIC uh, for $100,000 per insured category. In other words, the insurance on your money is backed by the government of Canada. So that means is, is that even if the bank was to go bankrupt, for example, you would still receive on your all your money back, right? Uh, because it's secured by the government. So, you know, just to be super clear, I'm not saying you should sell any bonds you have and put them in a high interest savings account. I don't know your personal situation and you should work with a qualified fee for service financial planner to determine the right mix for you when it comes to bonds, GICs, and high interest savings accounts. In other words, make sure you work with a professional that doesn't actually sell these products so that you can get a truly unbiased opinion. But I did want to get you thinking about these pros and cons so that you can better decide what's right for you. And I thought sharing with you how we approached it, so using a high interest savings account for our emergency fund throughout life and then using it even more during retirement as a cash cushion, you know, that was something that was a really good fit for us. So like I said before, the bank that I use for this is EQ Bank because they easily have one of the highest rates in Canada. Uh, plus it's totally free. Plus you get the unlimited transactions. You get unlimited Interact e-transfers and it's CDIC insured. So all the deposits are safe and guaranteed like what we just talked about. So if you are going to sign up with them, please use my link as it really helps support the show. And that link is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter E, the letter Q. And to thank you for doing so, once you sign up using that link, just email me any confirmation email that you get from them to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. .ca and I'll email you my in-depth guide on the top ETFs in Canada. So these are all the ETFs that I personally use in my investment portfolio. It's literally what the entire stock portion of my portfolio is invested in. And in that guide, I explain why I chose them so you can better evaluate whether they are also a good fit for you. Uh, now, I don't sell investments at all. So the guide is a totally unbiased opinion. And I have researched them pretty obsessively because 
apart from our house, our entire net worth is literally invested in these ETFs. So I think this would be a valuable, I, I thought this would be a really valuable resource to you as there are you know thousands of ETFs out there. And at least with this guide, you're getting an unbiased opinion on the top ones that I found and the ones I actually use. And so I think it'll definitely help you with creating a short list of what you decide to invest in yourself. All right. So we already talked about the safety portion of my portfolio. So this guide essentially tells you what I chose for the growth portion of my portfolio to capture the growth of the markets while also paying the lowest fees possible. All right. So just to finish it off, just to recap, the process is go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That will take you to EQ's homepage. Open a free account and send me any confirmation that you receive from them to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. .ca and I'll send you the full in-depth guide for free. The only caveat is that you must use that buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ link to sign up. So you can't just like Google EQ Bank sign up and then expect the guide. So just make sure you use that link. Um, and then that's pretty much it. So, you know, thank you once again for supporting the show in that way. If you do, it really, really helps a lot. And now let's get back to the interview. I hope that sort of guide and, and how we did, I hope that was helpful to you. All right, take care, bye. And I think that the the, the whole um, you know uh, low interest rate, um, aging Canadian, uh, high exposure to mutual fund uh, conundrum. You put all those three things together, and you've got uh, a lot of baby boomers that are going into retirement with a bunch of money in fixed income, a um, bunch of that money in mutual funds. And if you're in a, a balanced mutual fund where you're paying a 2% fee and 30 or 40 or 50% of your money is only earning 2%, you're paying a 2% fee to earn a 2% rate of return, you know, half your portfolio is earning nil. You might as well put it under oh, your mattress. So I think it's a, it's a very difficult time for investors who are invested in traditional ways in the mutual fund Um market to uh to make money for, for sure for sure you know I, I had that uh i was helping a family member out with oh, uh, with their investments not too long ago and yeah they were basically very conservative so they're just mm-hmm. in all fixed income and they were with a high fee mutual fund or it was it was mm-hmm. a segregated fund in this case but so i mean the, yeah. the mer was like over two and a half percent oh i'm sure right yeah. so uh, i think it was like yeah so over two and a half percent fee and so you look at their statements and it's like Oh, I earned one percent over the. You know, they're like yeah. they're, they're wondering, Cornell, why, why aren't I earning any money on this thing? And it's like, well, because you know the interest rates are low, and you're all fixed income, and their fee yeah. is more than what you know. It's it's enormous. So yes, you're, yeah. you're literally earning uh, no money and just paying these, uh, you know, and just paying these fees. So, uh, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, we uh, we we fixed that for them. But I mean, it was, uh, yeah. But but I mean, yeah, I, I worry about, uh, oh, you know seniors right who are in that this person's a senior now in that situation where they're following the traditional advice about going more bonds as they get older and they're still doing traditional investing via high fee mutual funds and then i mean that money so i mean it's not if they're earning one percent i mean it doesn't even beat you inflation right so and and i think one of the challenges is a lot of them are being advised by by people that work at um you know bank abc and um you know they're uh uh, mutual fund licensed financial uh, quote unquote financial planner or, or financial advisor at, at the bank branch level. And all they can do is offer bank mutual funds with um, fees of, of whatever they are. They're not fiduciaries. They don't need to tell their client about other options, unfortunately. And, and there's a lot of people that are getting conflicted advice that 
Um, you know, if, if the only thing that someone at the bank branch can do is sell you mutual funds, uh, if you're looking for a solution to your problem, you're going to get sold a mutual fund, right. unfortunately, whether or not that's the right way to go. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, their hands could be tired if someone says, I want to go ultra conservative. I, you know, I'm older. I don't feel comfortable. My risk yeah. tolerance isn't that good. What do you have for me? And they say, well, I, I have this fixed income, you know, mutual yeah. funds, and that's what they have to sell. And they get in trouble if they <laughs> say anything else. Right. And they can't well, tell them, oh, well, you go for all equities because our fees are going to eat up all your returns if you go bonds. I mean, you know, they, <laughs> they can't do that either. So yeah, it's it's a it's a tough situation to be in. Yeah, well. Yeah. Um, and, and it's easy to criticize the, those people and I've been known to criticize them in the past, but at the same time, you could have somebody that's doing the best job that they can do and the most, you know, genuine and looking out for the client, but the tools that they have are, you know, crummy, high-fee, low-yielding bond exchange traded for, or bond mutual funds um, you know, they're doing the best they can with bad products. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult environment though. The Canadian financial industry, the, the way that it's, it's structured, unfortunately is, is not necessarily meant for the consumer. There's a lot of great people out there, a lot of great advisors. I have the pleasure of meeting a lot of people, frankly, even at the bank branches sometimes that you think, okay, there's one of the good ones. Right. Um, but it's a, it's a tricky industry and buyers definitely need to be aware for sure. And yeah, and yeah, I mean, if they have a client come in and they're recommending low-cost ETFs and DIY investing that the bank makes no money off of or negligible mm. amounts, even if they keep it within the bank's brokerage, I mean, that, that advisor is going to be on the chopping block, right? I mean, they don't have... Yeah. It, oh, yeah. They're not going to hit their quotas. They're not going to hit any of that. Yeah. They're, not gonna, they're definitely not getting promoted. They have a family to provide for as well. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a really tough uh, spot. It's like being asked to do a job with with, with really horrible tools. And then... Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then oh, I, I assume some, you know, encounter some ethical conflict as well, right? Is I know this is the right oh, thing yeah. for the person, but um, this is all I can sell them, but... It's wrong mm-hmm. for them. So what do I do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the other challenge with uh, with DIY investing and exchange traded funds, and uh, I think it's great the way the the market has developed, and and I think that there are some great uh, opportunities through discount brokerages and uh, um, some of the you know eight hundred or nine hundred exchange traded fund options that you have to. To, to do some, um, you know, good self-directed investing. But I meet a, a heck of a lot of people who uh, will never be DIY investors. And I also meet a lot who have an interest in DIY investing. But once you start talking to them, you realize there's just, there's no way you're not well equipped for it. Some people, despite their best interests and, and or despite their best intentions to, to be a DIY investor, actually sitting down and pressing the buy and sell button is, is tough. And I have people that I've seen go DIY and have got to a point where they've said, you know what, I just don't feel comfortable anymore. I, I don't really monitor my portfolio or I don't know when to sell or I don't know what to do who've actually gone back to the traditional investment industry. And that's a matter of finding the right person that's a right fit. So there's, um, despite the ability to be a DIY investor these days, some people are, are frankly never going to be a good fit, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And I mean, that's a really good segue into sort of my next line of questions here about the asset allocation ETFs, because I, I do find that many investors who are new to investing or are switching to do-it-yourself investing. So maybe they've been you know, with a mutual fund for years. They, they learn about these fees now. They're ready to switch. They want to do it. But sometimes 
they get intimidated by now having to, for example, rebalance their investments and, mm-hmm. and actually go, you know, and there's also the piece some people get intimidated about just going on, you know, kind of the open market, right? And, and actually executing the order, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But I think, but I think that can be overcome if you see how someone does it. But I think the, the rebalancing thing from what I gather is what hangs a lot of people up. Not everyone is a spreadsheet nerd like, like myself. And I imagine you're mm-hmm. a spreadsheet guy yep. yourself yep. as well. So, yeah. So, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts about the asset? allocation ETFs and maybe if you could define them first as well just for anybody yeah. that's not familiar because they seem like a good uh, I, I mean I like them as like a middle ground uh, you know between okay you want to get away from those high fee mutual funds where yes your hand is held but you pay very very dearly for it versus asset allocations which is kind of much much nicer in my opinion versus going the full blown you know DIY ETF where you're picking individual <laughs> ETFs for strategically picking them for different accounts you know to make it more tax efficient you know that not everyone's willing to jump to that level right off the bat um, yeah so so I find asset allocations are kind of that middle middle ground and a good transition point for many what are your thoughts on those yeah so so traditional exchange traded funds um, are investments that you you buy that that trade on the stock exchange that uh, historically have tracked the Toronto Stock Exchange or the S&P 500. So if you bought um, an equity ETF that tracked the Toronto Stock Exchange, you would have an investment that would go up and down as the TSX went up and down. Um, If you wanted to build a diversified portfolio, which um, everyone should have exposure to Canadian stocks and and U.S. stocks, international stocks and bonds in whatever proportions are appropriate, you'd have to go out and buy, you know, generally at least three or four or five different exchange traded funds to get your asset allocation done properly. Some would argue it's it's more than that, but generally at least a few different exchange traded funds. And then you're trying to decide how much do I put in the Canadian ETF? How much do I put in the US? How much do I put in the international or the bond ETF? When do I sell? When do I buy? Um, these asset allocation ETFs are kind of cool. They've been um, around in, in Canada over the last year, there's been a, a number that have become available. And with an asset allocation ETF, in theory, you can buy a single exchange traded fund that gives you exposure to Canadian, U.S., international stocks and bonds. Um, in some cases, it's Canadian bonds, U.S. bonds, international bonds, very diversified. But a single exchange traded fund, you can have your entire portfolio and just buy one exchange traded fund and not have to worry about rebalancing, uh, not have to worry about doing anything because the rebalancing is done for you as as markets ebb and flow. um, The ETF internally rebalances back to some predetermined uh, targets. So it's a great way, I think, for someone who is convinced they want to go DIY to uh to to go or potentially consider um i i think it's going to be really interesting to see how things progress because in my mind it's a competitor for the robo advisors um that you know build etf portfolios of of seven to ten exchange traded funds for investors and charge a fee of you know 0.3 or 0.4 or 0.5 percent of, of your assets to to do it um an asset allocation etf i think can um, provide uh, a, a DIY investor a real easy way to do it. And, and my own bias for a DIY investor is rather than trying to build a portfolio of stocks and bonds, I think most DIY investors are better off just going the ETF route because it's it's simpler 
And um, the DIY investors that I've seen really blow things up are the ones that go and try to build their own stock portfolio and just buy a bunch of uh, banks and, or start getting fancy and buying, you know, penny stocks and trying to be day traders. Um, ETFs can be a really easy way for a DIY investor to go at it themselves. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I found just talking to listeners of this show too. I mean, I, I t- talk to quite a few and, and get emails all the time. And, you know, I, I find that there there are some that say, okay, I, I, I get it. I shouldn't be in these high-fee mutual funds. There's better options out there. And then I, I have a course too where I show how to do kind of what I talked, what we talked about before about actually picking, you know, individual ETFs strategically for the right accounts so that you get that tax optimization and all that. But I noticed just by talking with others that some are okay going to that, but some will say, okay, this is like, too much. This is a little too much all at once. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, I don't feel comfortable, you know, rebalancing myself using a spreadsheet, yeah. that kind of a thing. But I. So, so should I just go for a robo advisor then, right? And then I mm-hmm. say, and and then kind of learn what you're showing, and you know, learn how to optimize it, you know, over time. But in the beginning, just to get out of these heavy mutual funds, should I just go with a robo advisor? And then I say, well. Why, why don't you consider the asset allocation ETFs? Because you're going to oh, be yeah. paying much, much, much lower fees. And you're yeah. still, and then also you're getting, you're getting a kind of a step in as well into you still have to buy yeah. them on the, on the market through your brokerage, right? So you sort of get that experience. You learn how to do it, but it's so much easier because you're just buying one ETF. Uh, so if you've ever bought a stock, it's the same thing, uh, pretty, like the same process basically, right? Yeah. You're just buying one, one thing. And I find that is such a great way for people to to ease into it. And I would it, agree. Yeah, because it gets it can get I can see how it gets overwhelming. Where okay, hold on, there's four ETFs. I got to buy five, and which accounts do I put them in? And oh, yeah, you know, I'm adding money here. I'm taking money out. Where do I take it from? That's how right. Much? That's right. And then oh, I have to rebalance now, but I don't have the same amount oh, in, in each account. I don't want to pay the I don't want to pay the you know forty dollars in fees to do rebalancing. Ex- exactly. Exactly. So how do you do that? So there's all these. So it's kind of like not everyone is at that. Like two hundred one level, yeah. right? Sometimes it's like let's yeah. start with the one hundred one. Yeah, start with one hundred one. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a bad approach uh, at, at all. You don't necessarily need to go out of your way to have optimum tax efficiency as a as a DIY for investor. Sure. It's definitely a, a step into the DIY market for for those who are um, uh, well suited for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, it's it's amazing, Cornell. I'll tell you how many uh, people that that I talk to that that have an interest in DIY investing. And, and my, you know, goal is not to um, turn people into DIY investors or to direct them to any sort of uh, other way of investing. I, I sell my time. I, I don't get referral fees or, or commissions. I don't sell investments. Um, but I have clients who've been thinking about going DIY and I'll end up instead suggesting they consider a robo-advisor or instead you know, consider that they speak to a, a certain type of investment advisor or portfolio manager or whatever the case may be. Everyone's a bit different. Everyone's at different ages and, and stages. And uh, some people like to have that traditional advisor relationship. So I, I try not to let my own biases come through and, and let people choose the right course for them. Mm-hmm. And are there any negatives about asset allocation ETFs that you think Canadians should be well aware of and, and, and consider before deciding to maybe consider these types of investments? Um, I, th- I think tax efficiency, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ideally, if you've got different types of accounts, you've got an RSP, a TFSA, non-registered corporate, RESP, um, it, there can be advantages 
to holding certain types of asset classes like fixed income or Canadian equities, for example, in certain types of accounts. But as you alluded to, to me, that's sort of 201 and, and you know, DIY 101 is, is just, uh, you know, building a, a simple diversified portfolio asset allocation ETFs do it. Um, I, I think some people might look at an asset allocation ETF and say, this is too simple, one investment, it's not that diversified, even though it's got like 10,000 underlying holdings <laughs> yeah. or whatever it is, like it's more diversified than you know the vast majority of portfolios that I see. Um, you know, I, I suppose there is that risk that people see it as being too simple uh, and, uh, you know, trying to complicate things. But um, yeah, the, the list, list of, of drawbacks, I think, is low relative to the the potential benefits. I suppose one of the other ones is that um, generally the way that it works is uh, you can buy uh, an asset allocation ETF that's got, you know, 20% exposure to stocks and 80% to bonds or 40-60 or 60-40 or 80-20 and, and so on. So uh, you can have a, a 20% difference in risky asset or stock allocation between uh, one exchange-traded fund and the other that uh, may be a big jump to, to increase 20% stock exposure and, and have 20% more downside risk in a, in a downturn. I mean, that can be mitigated by holding multiple exchange-traded funds. Like if somebody was trying to decide between a, a, an asset allocation ETF that had 60% in stocks and one that had 40% in stocks, and they weren't sure which one, they could put half in one, half in the other, right. and then the combination of the two of them would end up being 50%. That's right. You can blend them, stocks. yeah. So yeah. There's, there's ways to, to mitigate that risk. Um, you know, not having... Uh, with It's not really a, a, a negative of asset allocation ETFs to negative of DIY investing, not having somebody to be able to call when stocks are down and the sky is falling and it's, you know, the end of the world, uh, which will happen at some point in the next few years. And we will see a a recession in a bear market one way or the other. Um, You know, as long as a DIY investor, particularly those who've been investing over the last 10 years when markets have performed actually reasonably well, uh, I think that uh, that's another important risk to, to remember. Stocks will fall. You will lose money being in stocks. But as long as your time horizon is long enough, you will recover and, and make that money back. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, the, the tax efficiency piece you mentioned, that's pretty much the primary reason why I don't use the asset allocation deals myself, just because you can squeeze a, you know some quite a bit uh, in terms of tax efficiency, whether it's the withholding taxes, you know things of that nature too, um, just within just by buying the individual ETFs. But I I totally get it how it it is. Uh, not everyone wants to jump to that level uh, right away, mm-hmm. and it's like you want to get your feet wet a, a bit wet first, and so I, as, as allocations are a good. Uh, good, good option for that for sure. Um, yeah, j- just to give anybody, uh, if someone's really new to this and, and maybe are confused by the asset allocation ETFs, the, the the process is essentially you figure out what your asset, and Jason alluded to this in his answer, you first find out what you want your asset allocation to be. So let's say it's 80% stocks, 20% bonds. And then the different asset allocation ETFs, they, they have different sort of proportions. So one of, the, one of them will be 80% stocks, 20 bonds. And so then you just buy that one and you will be add that asset allocation. So you just keep buying 
buying the same one. So step one is figure out what the asset allocation you want, which is what we were talking about before, where you can do the different quizzes, things like that. And I will link in the show notes as well, uh, you know, put on the site, uh, some uh, good free questionnaires that you can use. And then once you know that, then you can be say, okay, I know what my allocation is. Now I'm going to buy, you know, this particular asset allocation ETF. Um, but yeah, if anybody listening has questions uh, about it, let me know because I am building a really big guide on it because I get so many questions about these. Uh, so uh, I'll make sure to include your answer in that and just, just to help everyone uh, out. Um, so Jason, what accounts would you say are these asset allocation ETFs best suited for? Are there some accounts that they're better for than others? Yeah, I'd say there's not necessarily an ideal location, but um, you know, people need to keep in mind the, the benefits of different asset allocations and different accounts. Um, you know, if somebody has a a single account like a, an RESP, for example, that that is meant for a specific purpose, like you probably want to have an RESP with a, a diversified portfolio within just that single account, an asset allocation ETF could work well for an account like that. Or if the only account somebody had was their RSP, that could work well. It's just when you have, um, you know, multiple accounts that there could be benefits to going beyond asset allocation ETFs into individual ETFs. But uh, again, you know, the the incremental benefit of of the, the tax efficiency may not be uh, huge for for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the ones that I've been kind of trying to fig- uh, figure out is we have an RESP for our kids, mm-hmm. and I just bought ETFs within those the way we normally buy, where I buy the individual ones. Um, and this was before like the allocation ETFs even existed. I think is when yeah. I started it. Yeah. But uh, but now I'm thinking, man, these these things are really convenient because <laughs> for the RESP, yeah. I can just buy one and be done with it. And there isn't this sort of you know tax efficiency that you get. With uh, with RESPs that you get with other accounts, like if you do like a RRSP, right? There's some arguments to be made why you wouldn't want to do, let's say, an asset allocation ETF for that. Um, but what what are your thoughts about that? Because it seems I'm getting tempted by the convenience, and the MER is slightly higher, but it's it's not that much, and it's not like you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in your RESP either, right? So these even the mm. higher MER on an absolute basis, the fee seems somewhat negligible what, what are your thoughts yeah, particularly if you would otherwise you know be holding four or five different etfs and you would need to rebalance uh, uh and incur commissions or right. if you were adding money on a regular basis and you would be buying you know paying five commissions to buy rather than just one to buy the asset right. allocation yeah i think uh, a single account type like an resp it can work really well for a diy investor mm-hmm. and Particularly, even even a DIY investor, frankly, that is building their own portfolio of individual stocks and is is rather sophisticated, they may well use an asset allocation ETF for an RESP account and focus their attention and their trading activities on another account. So it can be a way to have some of your money kind of hands off and and simple and, and low maintenance and focus your investing attention on the accounts where it may matter more. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, because the way I look at the RESPs, I mean, this is very separate from a retirement, you know, like the TFSA, the RRSP, non-registered account. I mean, those I've earmarked for 
retirement purposes, right? But the RESP for the education, it's a it's a different animal, right? It's like its own little mm-hmm. bucket the way I view it. Like it's still part of it your is. it's still part of your net worth. So if things go really bad and you know you all lose yeah. your jobs and we desperately need the money, yeah, okay, fine. Maybe you can still you know you can draw yeah. you can still draw on that. But really, I mean, if things go according to plan, that's that's its own little sort of bucket that you manage. Yeah. At least that's what I do is I manage it sort of I'll very agree. independently. Sorry, you said you agree? I, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, and so that's why I'm thinking. We'll just it, do the it, asset allocation. It's a little portfolio that's kind of almost separate from from your own investment. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why that has so much uh, appeal. Uh, I think as well. So no, that's good to hear that you you um uh, you you feel the same. Eh? Um, that's great. Um, so oh, speaking of rebalancing, if somebody doesn't want to do that asset allocation approach and does want to rebalance themselves just to squeeze that extra tax efficiency out in their regular portfolio, like their retirement portfolio. Do you have any sort of rules that you like in terms of when you rebalance, you know, both for yourself, for your clients, et cetera? Uh, yeah, good question. I, um, from experience, from working with uh, DIY clients over the years, I can say that the majority of them do not uh, pay that close attention to their portfolios in terms of rebalancing and, and buying and selling and trading. I mean, I certainly do have clients I can think of one client where it's uh, it's in retirement. It's their full time job. They're monitoring their portfolio, looking at it every day, and you know, to each their own. Um, but a, a lot of people, I, I find, leave their portfolio along alone for for most of the year when they're DIY. So for for most people, I think a, at least a couple of times a year. Uh, a couple for some might be quarterly. For others, it, it might be semi-annually. I think at least once a year, you should certainly be looking at your portfolio and rebalancing. I think much more than than quarterly, and uh, it's you're looking at your portfolio and tinkering too much. Unless the caveat that that you know is an exception to the calendar rule would be if there was a big movement in the markets um, and. What is big? What percentage movement? You know, again, I don't think there's a um, uh, a percentage that that I could or would suggest. I know that uh, some of the robo advisors have their own rules about when they rebalance. But if there's a big movement in the markets and you've heard about it that stocks are way up or stocks are way down or a particular market, that may be one reason to look at your portfolio in between your quarterly or semi-annual or annual check-in. But uh, I think for most people, just you know, setting a reminder in their calendar should be sufficient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, what I found is we, when we were doing a lot of investing, uh, like you know, building up to the retirement, we just with every paycheck we would. I had a, I have a spreadsheet, oh, right? Yeah, and I just have. A You're spreadsheet. adding or subtracting. That's a great time to just do a little check-in. You know, or in some cases, you might be putting all the money into Canadian equities or U.S. equities or bonds, depending on how the portfolios ebbed or flowed. Exactly. Yeah. So that way, we never. I I remember that whole sort of journey. And I never had to really sell anything to rebalance because with every paycheck. You just say, okay, I'm going to buy the correct proportion of each amount to get the portfolio back into yeah. balance, and then I have a I have a spreadsheet that I use, and it, it's in the course I mentioned as well, where you just you know you plug the numbers in. And it's like, okay, I have to buy this many units of this, this many units that's that are based on the asset allocation that I specify, you know, that you specify that you want to have. And I found that was that was great, right? Because like I'm with Quest Trade as well, where you can buy the ETFs for free. Oh yeah. So it's like I'm not buying anything to buy them. I'm not selling anything because you, you do it yeah. pay when you sell, but you're not selling anything because you're just rebalancing by putting a portion of your paycheck in. And that worked out, but but I hear you. Like you definitely still want to go back 
if there's a big market move, you may want to you know take a look <laughs> and yeah. And also, and, and I think just for rebalancing purposes uh, alone, you know, I try again going back to our market timing discussion. You know, markets move that that just means it's a time to rebalance, not to panic or not to Speculate. tinker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that's right sell everything and put in the gold or bitcoin or... Yeah. <laughs> All right. i get those questions once in a while and i mean i'm, I'm not investment licensed so i mean i'm not um you know registered to to, to yeah. recommend particular securities i can talk high level about strategy and tax efficiency and, and things like that which frankly i think is more important than whether you're in royal bank or, or td bank but i get those questions every once in a while and you know, I just, uh, again, I, I uh, think it's hard hard for a, a DOI investor, it's hard for a professional investor to, um, you know, build and, and manage and, and actively um, manage a, a portfolio. So for DIY investors, I, I really lean more towards ETFs. Keep it simple. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Now, for this next question, I, I think we've covered it a fair bit, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just, just in case there's anything um, that you want to add. But basically it was that for somebody that is, already retired and needs to use their investments for living expenses, how do you determine whether to sell off equities versus sell off bonds or use, you know, cash or GICs? Maybe they have like a, you know, one year cash cushion or something like that. Do you have some sort of rule process that, okay, if X happens in the markets that I'm selling off equities to generate cash to live from? And if Y happens, then I use the cash cushion or the bond portion. Do you do anything like that? Or is it just, here's the asset allocation, here's how much we're off. And so we're going to take that money out and then we just rebalance and, and that's it. Is, is that pretty much how you do it? I mean, my own bias is, is towards doing the uh, the latter. I mean, doing uh, just looking at the overall portfolio, withdrawing proportionately from the portfolio. Um, again, it's, you know, possibly more important determining which account it's coming from and, right. and when. Um, that That is my own bias because it, it sort of forces the, the best um, buy low, sell high discipline and always keeps your portfolio um, in proportion. And again, there's been studies that have compared that type of approach to a bucket strategy uh, that, that have showed that it may be more effective. So that's my inclination. I just, I, I don't feel that I'm certainly myself. I don't feel like I'm smart enough to, to know whether markets are going to go up or down tomorrow uh, or in the next year or in the next three years, you know, certainly over the next five years, I expect, uh, diversified, um, balanced, uh, international, uh, portfolio to, to be up five years from now, but in the short run, I think it's just too hard to, to tell. So I, I bias away from, from bucketing, but, uh, some people, it gives them the emotional and psychological benefits that makes them feel better and sleep better at, uh, mm-hmm. at night. And that's super important in retirement. And, and a crazy thing that I've noticed over the years is you can be um, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, doesn't matter what age you are. I, I have clients that I've worked with that are into their seventies and, and eighties who have, you know, 80 years old and, and $10 million and still worried about running out of money. Oh, wow. Um, are still worried about, you know, making the right choices. And one of the most important lessons I think I've learned about money is that it almost doesn't matter how much you have and how old you are. You're always going to worry about money. And, and if it's not worrying about running out of money, it's worrying about what you do with money. Should I be giving more to charity? Should I be giving money to my kids? Are my kids going to be okay when they inherit this money? Um, you know, money is just such a, a weird thing that you're always going to worry. And if there's something you can do to worry less, 
even if it's not the best thing to do from a financial perspective, sometimes uh, psychology and emotions need to trump mathematics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. So when you what you were saying, I guess this is we talked about this a bit before, where in the case of this. Uh, having you know certain rules or things like that in terms of do I sell equities, do I sell bonds? You'll just say okay, let's say we ag- we agreed on an 80-20, 80 percent stocks, twenty percent bonds. Just as a just as an example, then yep. the equation is how okay if I want forty thousand for my portfolio, how much if I, if I take that out, I want to take it out in such a way that once I take the money out, I am at that eighty twenty one asset allocation that I decided is what I want, and then fate part two, which is then okay, well, and which from which accounts do I take that money out of, so that is very tax efficient. So for if you're let's say you have a really high fair. income earning year, then maybe it doesn't make sense does not make sense to take out as much from the RSP because that's going to now inflate my income, etc. So you sort of play around with that either by yourself if you're. A giant money nerd like myself, or you have an advisor, yeah, yeah. or you have a financial planner like yourself that that kind of helps yeah. with these optimizations and knows the tax rules and things like that. So, is, is, did, yeah. did I understand that correctly in terms of your approach? Yeah, that that's correct. And and uh, you know, I'm I'm just trying to think of like real case scenarios that that I encounter. And um, yeah, I, I can think of a client, for example, that every um, November we connect to talk about their. Uh, portfolio and their income taxes for the year they've got a, a traditional um, transactional investment advisor a stock broker effectively that they work with and they've got non-registered money and they've got RSPs and um, depending on the capital gains that they have had in their non-registered portfolio over the course of the year we may or may not take a, an RSP withdrawal they're in their 60s they've not converted their RSPs to RIFs quite yet um, but some years we don't take any RSP withdrawals because they've got a lot of capital gains and they've got a lot of non-registered investment income, whereas other years there's none. And we sneak some money out from their RSPs at a decent tax rate. And then we're trying to rejig and, and rebalance the portfolio accordingly. So depending how you invest your money, it may impact where you take the withdrawals from year to year. It may impact whether you're taking it from stocks or bonds. And then I think it's trying to uh, then rebalance the portfolio thereafter in, in some cases. So, um, yeah, I, I wish I wish there was a simpler way to um, explain it to, to your listeners and, and say, here's what you do and here's the strategy and here's the approach. But uh, I, I find that in, in real life, sometimes just it's it, it depends. For sure. You pretty much have to do it at the high level just for overall sort of strategy and what you're aiming for just yeah. to see the goalposts you know and aim toward but then everyone's situation is so different like do you have side income do you have pension income oh, yeah. are you doing this investing on the side like in your example in a non-registered account and that's mm. going to determine how much money you make and so maybe you don't take out anything from RSPs because you know you're going to be taxed at a higher tax rate if you do so it gets into this whole mm. tax strategy tax planning piece together with the financial planning. Yeah, it's very... Uh, That's a really important mm-hmm. uh, factor, I think, once someone has moved into the retirement phase and, and it's just emphasized more so if they have different potential sources of retirement income, investment accounts, pensions, when do you time your pensions? It's uh, it's it's kind of cool trying to figure out the, the right way to fund retirement, but it's tough, particularly for a DIY investor. The accumulation phase can be super easy. You can just mm. buy an asset allocation ETF and just throw your money in there and never have to worry about rebalancing at the extreme end. But 
I think regardless of, of who you are and how you invest and whether or not you have an, an investment advisor, once you move into the decumulation phase, which has not been paid attention uh, to very much until recent years, now that we have all these baby boomers retiring, it, it gets tricky. There's, there's tax and other implications as well. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of did a full retirement about six months ago now. And yeah, I've definitely found the decumulation phase so much more complicated than the Like the accumulation phase looks feels easy compared to the decumulation because there's so many things and so many unknown variables and different approaches and different models. And if you mess it up, you run out of money. So, so yeah. the stakes are very, very high, right? If you mess it Absolutely. up. So, so no, I, I, I hear you. It's, uh, it's very, it's very interesting once you start going kind of down that path, but it's kind of nice too, because you have so much flexibility in terms of tax optimization. Whereas when you're earning money, it's, or like a regular job, it's, it's harder I find, right? Because you have your like if you have a regular oh, traditional if job, you're a salaried employee, oh, yeah. and you've got you've only, you had a pension, and you can't contribute to your RSP, or you only have a limited That's amount right. of RSP. I mean, RSP is like the primary tool you can play with, right? Uh, yeah, whereas yeah. If once you have the retirement piece, it's like okay, now we can manage all these different income streams and all these different Ooh. things. So at least it makes it a fun puzzle. Uh, at least, oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> but I can see it being extremely sure. stressful for some people too, who aren't you know reading about this stuff for fun uh, because it, yeah. it's just so well, many particularly tenets. for DIY investors, right? Yeah. I, you know, clients have been excellent, well-versed DIY investors during their fifties and sixties, and you get into your seventies, and and sometimes it can be uh, difficult. I, I have clients who have said, you know, I just I'm having a harder time managing my my portfolio, and but I don't want to pass it over to an advisor, right. and maybe of years and I've had conversations with people who've said in a few years I want to choose a portfolio manager I want to choose an investment advisor I'm not quite there yet but um, you know it, it can be a lot easier to manage your investments and make financial decisions when when you're young the the degree to which it becomes difficult to, to use that part of your brain even if Cognitively, you don't have any impairment. Um, there can be a lot of changes that happen in your 60s and, and 70s and, sure. and 80s. It's going to be an, a very interesting uh, conundrum, I think, for the financial industry and for regulators and, and everyone over the next 20 years. No, that definitely, definitely. And just to finish things off and maybe change subjects a bit, what are your thoughts on the 4% rule? And are there any variable spending strategies that you like instead of using the 4% rule? Um, the the 4% rule, I think it's kind of, uh, cool because it's, uh, it's a, a rule that has some sort of, um, uh, basis to it that people can use and apply to their own investment portfolio and portfolio withdrawals. There, uh, are some problems with the 4% rule specifically in that when it was, um, put forth back in 1992, I believe, the uh, calculations did not factor in any investment fees, which for some DIY investors, there, there aren't or there's very little investment fees. But for the vast majority of investors, fees are relevant and, and pertinent and, and may cause the 4% rule to be lower than, than 4%. Um, and just to, to make sure that all the listeners are aware, 4% rule just suggests that uh, for a 65-year-old that is retiring and uh, is planning for a 30-year uh, runway for their investment portfolio, that they can withdraw 4% in the first year and then index that dollar value to inflation and increase it every year. 
thereafter. And the likelihood of running out of money during a 30-year retirement is uh, quite low, even in the worst um, historic 30-year uh, period for stock market performance. There's been, there was a, a great uh, paper that was done in the last year or two by um, uh, David Blanchett at, at Morningstar, and they looked at the 4% rule for Canadian investors and put forth that 3 to 3.5% may be a better rule for Canadians, uh, taking into account not only potential investment fees, but also just that in 1992, interest rates were a heck of a lot higher than they are now, um, and you know 3 to 3.5% may be more appropriate. But... Uh, there's tons of fine-tuning required, I, I find, with, with those rules. There's a big difference if somebody has all their money in an RSP versus in a TFSA, for example, because there's tax implications, obviously, on RSP withdrawals. Um, you know, some people are expecting inher- inheritances or a home downsize or, you know, still going into retirement with debt. And, and rules are linear, but life is variable. So while I like the theory behind the 4% or 3% rule, um, I think even variable spending strategies, you know, that, that you referred to, there's a number of them that give people rules for when and how they might change their spending in retirement based on portfolio performance. So that if your portfolio does poorly, that you may have some part of your spending that's variable that you spend less in a subsequent year. It's cool stuff for money nerds like you and I, but um, I think it's theoretical. In real life, I find uh, that rules like that are really tough to implement. Mm. Um, I'm biased. I mean, I I spend a lot of my day building out these long-term retirement and financial models for people to try to help them determine how much they need to save, how much they can afford to spend in, in retirement. And some people, there's just, there's changes that happen from year to year, death, disability, job loss, inheritances, good things, bad things that, that need to get taken into account. So um, I like the theory behind variable spending strategies and, and 4% rule, but um, life doesn't always work that way, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So you just do it on like a year by year basis it sounds like and you just yeah even year by year i mean i'd, I'd love to say that that you should do it on a, a year by year basis you know some i i have clients that i work with year in year out and i and i have for for 15 or more years then i have other clients where it's every you know five years then i have other people that i meet once and never see again mm-hmm. um i think whether you're working with a professional or doing it on your own the frequency is is going to change depending, um, but but I think you know forcing yourself at least once a year, even if it's on your own, to sit down and, and make some money decisions makes sense. But uh, but life, uh, I, I can tell you one of the the challenges that I've come across recently myself. I spend most of my day trying to help people live to a hundred and not run out of money, mm-hmm. but personally and professionally, uh, I don't know what in the water the last couple of years, but I have a couple of people in my life, unfortunately, that have died at a, a young age, you know, clients and family members. And it's caused me to sort of take a step back and say, gosh, like, am I telling people to be too financially responsible and save too much right. when, you know, you never know what the future holds. You never know if you're going to live to be 95. Should you be living more for today rather than saving for tomorrow. And, and I, I think that's the problem with, with rules. Life is, is very fluid for sure. Mm-hmm. 
So when you're doing, when you're meeting with a client and they say, okay, here, I've got, let's say a million bucks. I want to know if this is going to last me for the rest of my life, whether it's an early retirees, you know, someone in the fire movement, let's say, or or even yep. just a traditional retiree. Do you, I, I assume you have your financial planning software. So I imagine you run the simulations in that, but then do you do like Monte Carlo analysis on top of that to see if it's kind of sustainable how do you sort of i guess uh, you know stress test these things just so, just so that when you say yeah. okay you, you want 40k a year yes you can do it but how, like, how what are sort of the checks and balances yeah. that you go through yourself so that you can confidently tell the client yes you can or you know what maybe we're still gonna you know tweak it accordingly yeah. annually but as a baseline you know here's what i would feel comfortable telling you to spend this year yeah, I mean, sometimes we will do Monte Carlo analysis, which um, is very, uh, it's, you know, part of the analysis that goes into the 4% rule. Right. Um, and it's really cool, again, for, for us money nerds, I find sometimes it's it's difficult for uh, lay people to get their heads around. Sometimes we'll um, look at, at linear rate of return scenarios, but we'll stress test at a lower rate of return and a higher rate of return just to try to do it in a, a simple way that that clients can um, can understand uh, one of the the challenges that that I find with Monte Carlo analysis is that you're basically taking a, a whole bunch of different uh, historic rate of return scenarios that look at low returns and high returns for uh, an investment portfolio and applying it to your plan over a 30 or a 40 or however many year retirement um, but Again, you know, you, you sit down with somebody and, and say, um, you can afford to spend this much, even in the lowest rate of return or worst possible sequence of return scenario, but it does not factor in the potential of a job loss, an inheritance, uh, death at a young age. Like you can't run Monte Carlo analysis on your life expectancy or on your chance of becoming divorced. Like there's just, there's so many factors beyond sequence of returns that happen in real life that I think Monte Carlo can be an important tool. But I think it really reinforces for me that retirement planning and financial planning generally at any age and stage is uh, not something that you can do once and just say, I'm cool, I can spend this much money for the rest of my life or you know, I can save this much and, and I'm going to hit my targets. It's something you need to come back to occasionally, not necessarily every year, not necessarily even with a professional um, but you know, it requires constant, uh, revisiting for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I know what I do personally for our own finances. So I, I use a uh, snap projections. That's the software that I use. That's it. Oh, yeah. uh, you, you, you've heard of them, I assume, or yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, good software and, and, uh, you know, um, tough. I, I had somebody, I had somebody ask me today about, uh, you know, a good software tool to, to use, uh, just for them to run their own, uh, retirement calculations that was like a retail software. Right. And uh, I mean, Snap is one that, that maybe somebody could learn how to, to use. But I know I, I know it, for it, sure it's not for, it's only for financial planners though. <laughs> so Not really meant yeah. for your, uh, your listeners. And yeah, that, that's yeah. what I said. I, I wish I could give you a good recommendation, yeah. but well, but was, there's a handful of, of commercial softwares in the market and they all take a little bit of time to learn how to use. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like what, what I was getting with the, the Snap Projections pieces and, and, I, and from what I've, I've looked at other softwares as well and, and they seem to be similar in the sense that they'll do that sort of like what you said, the linear return where it's like, okay, we're going to assume your portfolio is going to make, let's say, 6% a year or, or whatever the case is, depending on your asset location. And it kind of does that as, you know, every year we're assuming you're making this much. So I find, you know, mm -hmm. that from the suburbs I've seen, that's a common thing. 
and that's great. Great planning can be done around that, but then you don't get, you don't really. I don't feel like that doesn't really cover the sequence of returns piece very well, right? And so that's why I was thinking, mm-hmm. at least for my own finances, when I was crunching the numbers for myself, I said, okay, I do all this like different scenarios and the snap projections just to you know, because because you can really factor in a lot of things in there mm-hmm. that you can do through like a regular online calculator that does Monte Carlo, but then also use Monte Carlo in addition to that to say. Uh, okay, let's 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 sort of run this scenario to see in a worst case scenario would I still be okay? So I kind of like did both of them, like used both tools, yeah. a Monte Carlo tool yep. and and a financial planning tool. And then if both of them are saying yes, then to my plan, then that means I'm good to go. I mean, it, is, what do you think of that approach? I, I think again, I think it's a good good approach, but uh, you know, I my my biggest knock on on Monte Carlo is is just that it focuses on um, an important, albeit you know, uh, not the, the only important piece of, of life and, and retirement. I, you know, again, I, I can't help but, but worry that the risk of working too long or the risk of, uh, spending too little and, and dying with too much money is, is also a risk. I'd, I'd rather die young with lots of money than, uh, die old with, uh, none and live a, a pauper in my later years. But, um, there's there's risks on both sides, mm. and there's not really a way to mathematically look at those risks or, or look at the risk. I, I have a, a client right now going through a divorce late in life in their 60s, and, and boy, I mean, it changes things for them, and no Monte Carlo analysis right. in the world look at that type of scenario. So again, Monte Carlo, helpful. Um, does it um, take into account all the potential things that could happen in the near future. No way. There's just uh, there's a lot of different variables when it comes to retirement planning. And if we could see into a crystal ball, it would make financial planning so much easier. Right. But I think I like uh, life the way it is, where it's a little bit more variable and fun and interesting, and you don't know what lies around the corner. Mm-hmm. That's very very interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. That, that, that's that's great. So uh, second last question: uh, If you could go back to when you first started investing. What advice would you give yourself? Um, it's a good question. You know, when I think back to my first real foray into investing, I remember buying a precious metals mutual fund. And I remember making a little bit of money and then losing a bunch of money and never making it back. And I don't remember why I bought it. Um, I, I think at the time I, I put all my savings into it. It was a, you know, not at all diversified portfolio. I, I think I must've read an article in the paper or something like that. And, uh, you know, thinking back, that was me being dumb and I, I had some insight. I studied economics at university. I was doing my, uh, CFP designation. I, I should have known better, I suppose. But um, I think it just goes to show you, you need to beware the financial media, financial media that I'm a part of, um, because there are people out there that are not financial planners and are not CFPs or CFAs or accountants. Um, And even those who are may have their own self-interest or or bias. Um, So I I think that um, the mistake that I made was, I was investing for the short run and, and investing based on a, a hot tip or, or idea. And uh, I think that people need to really think for the long run with financial decisions they're they're making and uh, try to take any advice you get with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm, for sure. I think a lot of people, at least ones that I've grown up with, they, they 
hear that hot tip when they're in high school or something like that and they oh, try yeah. it, right? And then they get, I have yet to meet one that didn't get burned. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, it's like, okay, I, hopefully they don't swear off investing entirely. Uh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. But hopefully eventually they say, okay, there's got to be another way of doing this than basically mm-hmm. being a stock picker or a day trader or something like that. And, oh, and yeah. then, you know, find, uh, find that there are other approaches and that it's not necessarily a risky business. There's just different ways you can structure it to really decrease mm-hmm. your risk. Um, so no, that, that's yeah. great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so, so Jason, yeah, just to finish things off, can you tell us a bit about your practice and where we can learn more from you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, again, I'm a, a fee-only or, or I guess advice-only financial planner. So don't sell investments, don't sell insurance. I sell my, my time, my advice. Um, we don't receive uh, commissions or referral fees. We're an independent firm. I've got three other financial planners on uh, on my team, uh, which is great. You know, we're super busy these days and seems to be more and more interest from people to, to work with uh, financial planners in a, a different type of way that isn't tied to products. Um, we work with clients in the greater Toronto area where our office is located, but I would say these days probably at least a third of our clients are not even in Ontario. Uh, they're in other provinces, other parts of Ontario, but certainly other provinces across Canada. We work with a lot of clients in other countries, in fact, Canadian uh, citizens who are living and working uh, abroad. Um, we um, can be found uh, online, objectivefinancialpartners.com. You can hit me up on Twitter uh, at Jason Heath CFP. And I also write for the Financial Post, uh, Money Sense, uh, Retire Happy, and Canadian Money Saver. So uh, you'll probably see me out there uh, as well. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today, Cornell. It's been it's been a blast. I, I love uh, you know geeking out like this with uh, <laughs> yeah. we know with, with fellow people that are also really really into this. So thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I, I, I had a blast. It was a great great conversation. Thanks for your you know your insights and your wisdom on all this. And uh, and yeah, definitely we'll uh, you know I'll, I'll link out to you know to your site as well and all of that and. And uh, you know some of the the articles you've written as well. It's uh, it's, it's it's yeah. You've definitely done some really really great work. Uh, I've been f- following you for a long long time. Uh, just you know with all your articles you've written on Money Sense and especially so so yeah. So thanks for coming on and, and sharing uh, your expertise with us. No, my pleasure. All right, thanks take for care, Jason. Me. Bye. All right, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to get your free tickets to the Canadian Financial Summit by going to buildwealthcanada.ca/slash/conference. And even if you're listening to this episode months or years after it's been published, you can still go to that link so that I can let you know when I have free tickets available for next year's conference. And I'll also email you a video recording of my talk from this year's conference so that you don't miss out on that. All right. So that link again is for the free tickets and the video is buildwealthcanada.ca slash conference. All right. Hope to see you there. I've already talked about EQ Bank twice this uh, podcast, so I'm not going to you know do it again. I don't want to drive you crazy. Just know that the link is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. Uh, but yeah, well, what, you know, for everybody that has already signed up, I, I do appreciate and uh, that, and I do hope you like the guide as well. I put a, a ton of work and, and research into it. And yeah, I mean, if you have any feedback or you know maybe you're a non-ETF investor, maybe you know, you're know you doing something a bit different, maybe there's another type of guide that would work better, that you think would be more 
useful to you uh, because of just the subjects you're interested in, you know, definitely let me know. Reach out to me. Uh, you can go on the site, buildwealthcan.ca. There's lots of ways there to get in touch with me. You can let me know and, you know, definitely want to produce more content that is relevant to you. So if there are any sort of other ideas or guests you want on or questions you want to answer, definitely feel free to submit them and I will do my very best to incorporate them, you know, for future episodes or future guides, etc. Now, speaking of guides, in case you missed last month's episode, I do have a new free guide that I created on the top personal finance and investing tools available to Canadians. So these are all the tools and sites that I've personally used to help us achieve financial independence so that we could quit our jobs and you know in our 30s. And they're also the tools and resources that I use now to optimize and manage our finances and ensure that we're paying the lowest fees while also getting solid returns are on our investments. So I'm giving this guide away for free to all Build Wealth Canada listeners. All you have to do is go to buildwealthcanada.ca and enter your email at the top of that page so that I know where to send it, all right? Now, this will also add you to the Build Wealth Canada newsletter where you'll be informed of new free guides as they get released, as well as any giveaways that I have on the show. So, you know, it is the best way to ask questions that you want answered on future episodes of the show. And I suggest, um, and suggest as well what future guides you'd like me to build for you and the community as well. All right, so enjoy the guide. I'm here if you have any questions and you can get all that by just signing up for free over on the front page of buildwealthcanada.ca. So enjoy and I hope to see you at the conference next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 